This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing the 2019 film The Lighthouse. Helen, kick us off. Yes, so I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Um, I gathered a few thoughts. I had a maybe a slightly strange experience watching it earlier in today. I was saying to Benjamin earlier, I had this sort of real anxiety session today and then I was watching the film on my laptop, which is also probably not the best place to watch it. Um, so I think probably on the big screen, I would have had a different um, interaction with the film. Although on some levels, perhaps an even more intense one in terms of the elements I'm going to talk about uh, here. So yeah, the film, um, obviously there's elements in it that, that point to other films in an interesting way, like the birds, potentially Annihilation. But I think um, the reference that I think is most strong is um, the silent film. So film of the 1920s and perhaps early, early sound films. And so something, and again, we, we spoke about this on previous podcasts, like watching a film often, like I don't, um, feel like I have the luxury of just watching a film. I watch like the edifice of the film just because I'm involved in making films. So uh, it's what I see. And um, the I found it quite difficult um, on, a, on a viewing experience in terms of what I felt was quite um, a strong affectation. And so all I could see was the direction. So I found it really quite difficult to sort of lose myself in it. And I think Interestingly, so it really does evoke that um, silent film. Obviously, it has the uh, the nearly square um, ratio, which I think isn't quite the same as a lot of silent films, but it really evokes something. And then um, the way that it's uh, shot. So, um, you know, I, it's with like spherical lenses, so it's sort of squashed in within the square, but it's um, very much lit uh, in the um, exaggerated uh silent film kind of way and so the affectation of silent film which is required to get across the information without speech is there supplementary to all the sound design and speech and music and I found it um quite quite a lot um particularly the sort of um the experience of the camera movements it really felt like it wasn't me viewing the film but me viewing through um somebody making the film or viewing through the lens of the camera making um, the the director making the film so, yeah, and then it made me kind of think about, and having said that, you know, there's elements of this that I found thought were absolutely fantastic. And um, the dialogue, Willem Dafoe was just absolutely incredible. And the sort of the evocation of, um, of um, an eeriness, a sort of um, um, expressionist-y kind of um, Victoriana, uh, I thought was, was really cool. Um, but yeah, I guess in terms of the sort of affectation, and I've, I've, I've talked about this loads of times in terms of um, the films that I really like and where I think the, the real power of film is in its ability to um, bring us in on this really subjectival level. Um, I'm doing a lecture just after this about film and um, how it relates to psychoanalysis and philosophy. But um, in uh, sort of the Lacanian frame, there are, all these, the, there are the four discourses and films related to the four discourses. Um, we can kind of see how different forms of discourse um, render a film like powerful or annoying so <laughs> within the four discourses you know you have like let's say the master's discourse which a film um like a, a typical hollywood film which really sort of tells you how to desire might fall into and then uh, you might have like a, a, a hysteric film that's sort of challenging the master's discourse and uh, inviting a new um the master to constantly generate new uh discourse essentially and so you might have like let's say a documentary that's like 
about a given topic, like um, an activist-y type of film or even something like an anti-vax film that's like really trying to poke holes in the narrative or a conspiracy theory film. Um, but I am interested in films that um, I would say fall into like the analyst discourse where they expose how the viewer desires. And so I think that um, in order to do this, um, these kinds of films have to use the dialectic of desire. So bring us in at the level of desire, sort of lull us into um, a sort of hypnotic state almost in relation to the film. And this is both to do with the drama, the narrative shape, and also the sort of corporeal physicality of film. And I feel like that affectation element kind of like it, it, it sort of dis, there's a sort of disjuncture there in terms of the viewing experience. But having said that, like I really I, we talked about France the other day, and I really like that film in its um, alienating um, technique. But I think it kind of worked precisely because it did everything to sort of bring you in and then um, undercut that um, involving experience. So you sort of experienced a bit of the alienation of the main character. But yeah, this film I kind of felt like. Maybe it was missing a trick in its affectation. But on the other hand, where I think it could be quite interesting is related to the sort of the horror otherworldly element of the film. So, um, you know, we have this um, subjectival experience of the uh, uh, Robert Patterson character, although, again, this directorial presence kind of, I think, undercuts that. But that, that's like otherworldly presence of a figure, of a tertiary figure in the scene, the director, maybe evokes some kind of otherworldliness or some grander being that um, maybe is projected as existing in this sort of uh, psychotic scene, this sort of scene where these characters, or at least um, Robert Patterson's character, especially is losing his mind. And then so this sort of projection of some magical other existing maybe adds to that kind of experience. Um and I think it's interesting that the, the sort of final um, scene where really the Robert Patterson character is like confronting his desire as it relates to this sort of magical object, the, the, the lens of the lighthouse. We really just as sort of um, in a Lacanian sense, you know, the drive um, never really lands on an object or even desire doesn't land on an object other than this sort of object, a, this mystical kind of non-object and I thought it was interesting the way that Robert Patterson sort of reaches out to the light and has a sort of experience with the light, but we never see what's in the light, just his reaction to the light. So I thought that sort of presence absence that relates to his sort of um, desire was quite interesting. And then I think from a completely like different angle, you know, there's questions of exploitation are quite interesting. Um, I think there's sort of an element of like the master slave dialectic here in a world where um, we just have like, so I guess the most basic civilization, right, is two, two people, uh, a person living with another. And there's sort of some kind of like political dimension within the organization of how these two people relate to each other. And in this, uh, you know, um, mini civilization where there is one master and one essential kind of like slave, um, as Hegel points out, this will always uh, descend just as other forms of um socialized organization that deny the um, the antagonism or the contradiction of the, of this uh, organization will fall into another system. So in this master-slave dialectic where the one where wake is sort of so bossy and denying the real subjectivity and humanity of um, the other, th then there cannot be um, a correct sort of view on the situation because um, in order to have a rational, reasonable, thoughtful um, vision of a world, one must have a divided subject 
because only the divided subject has the capacity for thought because they have the capacity to speech because they're, uh, because they're divided. And so in this master-slave dialectic where one has the power and one doesn't, there will always inevitably be some kind of disintegrated, disintegration of that system. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, maybe I'll give it another viewing on a different day. Uh, but yeah, those are my thoughts. All right, Nina. Mm. All right. Yeah, so uh, I suppose one thing this film unintentionally did was remind me about uh, how I occasionally miss the kinds of drunkenness that reach such uh, extreme levels <laughs> that one enters into a kind of madness. And I thought the film depicted that quite well. I, I thought it did this kind of mutual, um, like, folie deux, like the scenes where they both lose their mind together, I thought were quite well done. It reminded me of Dow, which was a film I was kind of involved in about writing about, which is a kind of very interesting, controversial uh project from a, a couple of years ago uh well the final final films were released um which was a kind of uh shrouded in mystery but a kind of uh experimented living where people lived together um and the the footage from this real life experiment was made into a series of feature films um and one of which is very memorable is a is a is a, is a drunken scene between two men which is which is real as in they're really drunk so I, I think one of the things I, I struggled with, maybe it relates a bit to what Helen was saying, is that I, I found it very difficult to um, suspend my disbelief enough not to see the joins and the and the um, the sort of uh, deliberate fictional, you know, the fictionalization of a possibly real period. Like I, I, I didn't really want to get into the plot or the characters. I, I found myself frustrated with the very idea of plot and character and story. And I've been told all day that I need a story uh, when I do media things. And I'm absolutely sick of stories. I think stories can go fuck themselves. I don't care about characters. I don't care about plot development. I also slightly uh, have destroyed myself by, by being exposed to a whole series of extremely experimental and avant-garde things lately. So these conventional things like narrative uh, are also, you know, in a Brechtian way, like disgusting to me. And I think incidentally or accidentally last night, I watched a documentary, which was also about, was about fishing. It was about being at sea. It was a 2012 documentary uh, called Leviathan, not the, the Russian film, but the, there's a, a documentary made by people at Harvard from the, the sensory ethnography lab. And it, and they it, they filmed a fishing expedition, a real real one with GoPros, and it's extremely kind of visceral and uh, almost like being trapped in a kind of industrial uh, music video, but it's real. And it, that was a very very vivid portrait of um, of uh, reality of life at sea. By by unfortunate comparison, this film, although it was kind of dark and edgy and had all this symbolism and all this violence, um, sort of suffered. And was pale in comparison to the uh, to that documentary, which was which was actually like a kind of intoxicating and brutal and relentless experience at the level of sound and image. And I, I highly recommend it if people like extreme sensory <laughs> experiences, because you could kind of feel uh, the the brutal nature of the of the sea in a different way. And I also I think that the kind of use of symbolism. In this film, of course, it's playing off of tropes that we understand, like the mermaid and the kind of desire and the madness of being isolated and, and all of these things, which in, I guess are kind of common tropes. But I almost thought it was it did it too quickly. It went too quickly to the kind of symbolism of the birds and the and the and the mermaids and, the, you know, the seagull and these kind of 
in the sense that I think a, a more effective film would allow the audience more time to draw those kinds of symbolic associations and meanings. Like it, it didn't leave open enough room for a kind of ambiguity at the level of the of the symbols. Like they're either too straightforward or they were too quickly explained um, in, in a way. Um, but but I think for for a, I don't know if it was a Netflix commissioned film or whatever. It it it, it felt a bit like a mainstream attempt to depict a kind of psychological horror that yeah as Helen said drew on previous uh films in loads of ways and sort of sat in an ambiguous way uh between several genres um which which is okay but but not uh not nearly kind of vicious or brutal enough for me in my current state of mind interesting all right i'm up the Lighthouse stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe as two lighthouse keepers who just don't get along. This is unfortunate because they're stuck in the same lighthouse for a month. Dafoe is the senior wiki and Pattinson the junior. So Dafoe gets to order Pattinson around. Dafoe is not a fun boss. Dafoe won't let Pattinson into the lantern room, even though according to the rules, they're meant to take turns tending the light. Dafoe's an alcoholic even though Pattinson is teetotal. Defoe makes Pattinson do all the backbreaking manual labor. But no matter how hard Pattinson tries, Defoe scorns him as a lazy good-for-nothing. Pattinson is a hard worker. It's all very unfair. The night before their month together ends, Defoe succeeds in pressuring Pattinson to drink with him. When Defoe is drunk, he's a much nicer guy. Then a storm rolls in and prevents Pattinson from going home. Trapped in the lighthouse with Defoe, Pattinson begins drinking with Defoe just to keep the peace. When their rations run out, they find a crate full of gin. Before too long, Pattinson joins Defoe in alcoholism. When the gin runs out, they start drinking turpentine. Eventually, Pattinson discovers that when they do get home, Defoe plans to expose him as an alcoholic. It's infuriating because it was Defoe who urged him to drink in the first place. Things get dark and violent. Nobody wins. The Lighthouse is a period piece set in the 1890s, but I have never seen a film that better encapsulates the conflict between boomer professionals and the millennials who hope to succeed them. Pattinson followed the rules, only to discover that Defoe will use his discretionary power to make arbitrary decisions. Pattinson has a strong work ethic, but Defoe never rewards it. Pattinson was told he'd get to tend the lantern, but he's stuck doing grunt work in perpetuity. Pattinson can only endure for so long before he is psychologically broken. With no hope of performing the job he hoped he would get to perform, he resorts to increasingly debased coping mechanisms. By the end of the film, his virtues have deserted him completely. Defoe drags Pattinson down to his level and then pushes him down further still. Most people are only good if they think they'll be socially rewarded for it. Pattinson is punished for his virtues until they desert him. Over the last 10 years, I've watched a lot of people in my generation go this way. They come into the professions bright-eyed and ambitious, but when they discover that they won't be rewarded for a job well done, they melt down. They are encouraged over and over to libidinally invest in their jobs as future sites of identity. When their jobs don't perform this function, they become desperate. They become willing to do anything to get ahead, no matter how horrible. If even that is not enough, they turn to debased coping mechanisms. 
Narcissism, addiction, depression, all of it is unleashed. They burn out and they start to resemble the shiftless ne'er-do-wells of boomer narratives. I remember reading a piece in GQ back in 2018. It was called In Praise of Being Washed, and it was written by a fellow called Zach Barron. Barron argued for a middle way between clinging to millennial ambition and succumbing to despair. The washed man doesn't quit, but he gives up on the idea that he can be perfection incarnate. He doesn't have to represent some abstract, infallible version of himself. He can be who he is, an imperfect person in a flawed universe who is just doing the best he can with what he has. If Pattinson had been able to do that, the lighthouse would have a more pleasant ending. But Pattinson rages at the injustice of it all. His rage drives him to drink with Defoe, but the booze can't keep the rage away forever. Those who try to be better than they are end up worse. The carrion birds feast on the proud. Yeah, very funny. <laughs> I, I, I like that reading as a generational um, fable, or I, uh, I don't know, warning, warning. I mean, it does. It, it makes me think of, of lots of things. I mean, it's it's a generational Oedipality thing. Then, in that case, I mean, is would you say that Robert Pattinson is a representative of? millennial like he's a millennial mm-hmm. hero right in that sense yeah, yeah. So, well it's, it occurs to me that gen x as useless as we are sort of provides a solution that is a not a solution to this problem which is the overinvestment of the millennials in the job as a job as identity and the boomers clinging on forever and ever and being hypocritical and, and awful and whatever um is the the middle way as you said which which was something like don't invest your identity in your job you idiot like the job is not you. <laughs> like the job is something you have to do to like make money to pay your rent and that kind of thing. But but you are not your job, you know. And and the idea that you would ever waste time, like I don't know, uh, being careerist or screwing people over in order to sort of be you know more in your job is totally anathema to us. And and I there's that thing I did with Benjamin Boyce, who's a, a YouTube person, and he suggested that Gen X have to be the mediators between the millennials and boomers because we we are sort of like in the middle in every way and you know our our kind of relative indifference not to generalize about generations but you know let's let's go down this route for a moment there's all cl- this class you know let's put class or you know of course but generational tendencies let's say which are all symptoms of the technology and the and the culture we grew up with so but but there is something to be learned from this middle way like so for example had they the, the lighthouse is an interesting job, right? Because the, is it a job or is it a vocation, right? Like this is an interesting question that's raised by Benjamin's points, I think, right? If you have a job, but you have free time, we've talked about this a lot, but like you can have hobbies, you can have all these things that you actually like doing, whether it's spending time with your friends or doing something you actually like or looking after your pet or, or reading novels or whatever, right? It's, it, that's you. That's more you than your job. Right. But if you're doing something that you can't get out of, like you, you're, you are this thing. Right. So they, the blurring of the boundaries between who you are and what you do is sort of manifest in this film. I think it is well done in that way. And also because neither of them are who they say they are. Right. Either. So mm-hmm. they're not actually the person doing the job. They're actually someone else. But they, they're doing this job. Um, so they could have like not gone down the drinking turpentine route, even though it's fun to get extremely insanely drunk. Um you know, fun and not fun. It's a kind of hell fun, whatever hell fun is, uh, you know, self-destruction, uh, death drive. Um, but they could have kept the place tidy, right? Even though there was a storm. But in a way, it's like 
the, the na- nature stops them from, from from doing the Jordan Peterson on the lighthouse. Like they could have like <laughs> tidied up, <laughs> but they didn't do that. Anyway, I I don't know if Gen X are particularly tidy either, but maybe they could have separated like work and play a bit more. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like there's the difference. I love this. Like being Jordan Peterson gets mentioned all the time. I love it. Love it. Um, I was thinking somebody the other day on on Instagram was saying asking people what we should do for our um hundred patron episode we're going to do like we're going to celebrate having 100 patrons so thank you to our <laughs> yeah. 100 patrons or near 200 patrons and somebody's like interview John Peterson I'm like could we ever do it as well as G-Jack did it but I sometimes fantasize about what I would say to the man that um you you don't know you keep calling everybody postmodernist who isn't actually fucking postmodern but anyway the but the um so, you know, to, so, so this thing with like your identification with the job, right? So it's interesting that in the 1890s, I thought was an interesting time. And you say like a job and a vacation, because obviously there is this sort of um, the, the like professional 40 hour a week thing is different to what a lot of people had to engage in in the past before there were sort of greater workers rights in, in terms of survival. So that you you didn't have like a beginning, middle and end to your day. You are X and you sort of give yourself over to X. I sometimes think I used to teach at a boarding school was a little bit like this. You like you know, or like somebody who like looks after a church or something. It's like, you are, you are it. And mm-hmm. I think in the, um, in before, as I say, there was sort of like a delineation between when work starts and when it ends and X number of hours in a day and weekends and stuff, you, you become a thing, you know, you are a, a maid to a family or something like that. So there's that. And the question of like, I identify with your job, but you kind of don't have a charm, a choice when like materially you're like just born into servitude or something. Um, but then, yeah, then there is the question of the sort of the bad faith, you know, existentialist sort of Sartrean question of like over-identifying with your, with your, um, with your job and losing yourself in the job and uh, not being able to sort of have any kind of like reasonable um, distanciation and potentially the over-investment leads to the need to kind, kind of like go on your um, little trip your alcoholic trip to sort of escape the totality of what you've invested in. But I think, yeah, in that, in that sense, these people, yeah, I don't know if there's a question of like overinvestment or if it's just like the material conditions at the age that just sort of have to live, breathe their work. Well, I think that one of the things that's interesting is that young people, as neoliberalism and competitive global you know, labor market forces people to spend more and more of their time working, they're invited to treat their job as a vocation, in part because it's going to take over their life mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. So if they can't treat it as a vocation, then they're going to be really miserable. And being a lighthouse keeper is, I think, a, a great metaphor for this, because if you're a lighthouse keeper, then you are living at work. So you can't really get away from the person that you are at, at work because you're living in the lighthouse. And I, I thought that perhaps that was part of what was being conveyed in the way that it was shot, you know, the kind of claustrophobic nature of this film. It's that they're trapped in this setting of the lighthouse. And if they just weren't in this lighthouse together, then they could be totally different people. They were different people before they came to the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. They would easily become different people again if they could get away from each other. It's the fact that they can't get away from each other. They're in this pressure cooker of this lighthouse that turns them into what they become by the end of the film. And it's the only way that they could become what they become by the end of the film. It's interesting. That makes me think of, you know, obviously the question of the freedom of the freelancer. Well, the freedom of becoming your own enterprise, your own boss, you know, the fact that you have to, you know, this isn't, as you say, it's not a choice. It's sort of forced into this. Um, 
but it kind of made me think of like the lighthouse being some kind of like ivory tower you know it's the sort of like um the the sep- and obviously the particularization of being like thrust off into an island somewhere obviously there's two people but like in our in our freelance world you are like everybody is their own as i say entrepreneur their own brand their own specific thing and of course um so many factors have, have uh have uh, generated this, you know, the neoliberal market system, globalization, the internet, you know, but we really are each in our own ivory tower, each in our own. And it's, as you were saying, like, Nina, you were talking about your media training in terms of like the culture industry, you know, and um, you have to sort of come up with, you know, the, 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 you are the person who does X, you know, you are the person, this is your, any, any like startup has to have a narrative even if it's sort of a totally made up bollocks, like kind of, I cured my life-threatening condition with eating a few more vegetables. Like, well, no, you didn't, but like, that's a lovely, you know, ideological fake digestible thing that can um, convince people that there's promise in your product. Um, and we, we contain, as speaking, speaking subjects, multitudes. We aren't all in our little ivory towers, really. You know, that, that, that goes against the reality of human subjectivity. Yeah, I mean, I think this this point about um, everything becoming more like work and in a way, so like think about Google and like these employees that basically live in a kind of playpen. It's like mm-hmm. your childhood, you know, you've got all your toys and all of your, you know, bloody uh, t- table football and, you know, everything is kind of designed to like, you know, to make you live in, in a kind of glorified playpen, essentially, and, and to over-identify with the role. And my former supervisor, um, Peter Osborne at um, Kingston, a uh, great thinker, um, very critical man. Um, he he would um, often point out when we were talking about discussions of work and and labour, you know, that vocation used to mean something like you couldn't help it, like it was, you know, it was a calling, right? Like it was something you 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 felt uh, the 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 calling to be a priest or or even to 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 be a teacher or to be something, right? That 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 sort of spoke to your soul, and and in the intervening. Period. Vocational training just became almost the opposite. It's like something that you can help, but you're sort of being trained to do. It's not something you can't help. It's not a calling. In fact, it's the precise opposite mm-hmm. when we talk about vocational work. Yeah. You know, and and there's something very awful about that. But at the same time, this kind of idea that everyone's become like a walking CV, everyone is kind of nothing other than their capacity to be a sort of node in this kind of like labor. Uh, environment and you know particularly at the kind of cultural end the creative industries that nonsense um you know it's all of those kind of the things that actually people really know like for example that most people who are able to make a living quote unquote as writers are independently wealthy Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. right like or to make be a filmmaker or to be Mm -hmm. any kind of person who full-time or at least is able to devote most of their time to doing this right is already someone who's enormously materially privileged, right? But that's kind of, we pretend that that's not true. Or we we think, oh, well, there's some secret, there's some mysterious thing that permits some people to do this. And, and in some rare instances, maybe there is, right? Maybe some people are funded because they have an excellent proposal and that even though they didn't have any time, they still were able to do it. And, you know, this is why we, we sort of have... Um, sort of heroes like J.K. Rowling or something, you know, a working class mother, you know, who is able to sit there and write this kind of thing that really got millions of children to read. I mean, I wish they'd read something else other than Harry Potter, but, you know, at least they read three books or whatever. Fantastic. Um, so, so yes, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to put it. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. I totally, totally agree. And I think a lot of people who enter the creative industries, because the ideological supplement is so, so con- convincing, you don't really understand this until you are confronted with the reality of this and the ab- the abject, um, like, impossibility um, faced with the fact that, it, yeah, it's, it's not really, as you say, uh, a profession, <laughs> you know. Um, it's reliant on so many factors that are completely denied. To, and the denial is so um, extensive. And I think that's particularly why we see um, the woke ideological supplement, particularly in the media industry. Yeah. These, these, the, the greater the lie, the greater the abuse. So um, I think um, there's, there's various aspects um, to an, a sort of a, a social structure that um, generate abuse. As as a sort of addendum to them, one of them I think is the um, the investment in the lost object, and I think uh, the media has a lot to do with because a lot of as we were talking about before, um, you know, the master's discourse teaching people how to desire. So there's some kind of like mysterious um, unknown quantity within the arts that gets people um, going, that gets people wanting to be part of this generation of desire. Um, to be the object A. And so that gets people to, and also the, you know, the glamour potentially, which is related to that object A, gets people to overinvest um, libidinally in it, into this promise that doesn't actually exist. And this um, overinvestment in this, in this magical promise lets people, will get people to, to sacrifice everything. You know, people, humans are irrational. <laughs> Drive is irrational. Desire in, in, in many ways, of course, because it comes with human subjectivity is irrational. And humans, as long as there is a promise, are willing to do anything, anything to, to, to achieve it. Um, so there's that element. And then also in terms of just more um, material questions, in terms of who has power, when, when um, a system is illogical, and uh, this the, the, the media industries are highly illogical because they are not um, in any way to do with... Um, the standards exist in so far that occasionally you will have stand you will have standards, um, and often standards are used as sort of like a kind of um, a veil to justify what's really going on. And the fact is that many people are capable of producing the work that's produced and, and given the sort of um, credentials of being a work of genius. And because so many people are able to do it, there has to be this like constant batting away and these sort of horrendous. As I say, the more the more. Um, based it is on an untruth, the more the uh, abusive lies have to sort of take hold. So I think there's, there's many factors. And I think that the material denial of the fact that um, the vast majority of people who are able to have a career in the arts are down to the wealth of their parents um, does lend um, the system, it makes it really right for, for forms of abuse. Yeah. And I think a lot of people if they are aware, a lot of young people have an awareness that we have this marketized, heavily capitalistic society. There aren't very many good or safe places to be located in it. And so if you think that there is a way of insulating yourself or protecting yourself from this system and its pernicious imperatives, then it becomes very, very important to end up in that spot. And I think that the lighthouse, similarly, a lighthouse has that kind of appeal a lighthouse is a place you can go and be away from society, be away from social norms. It's something that you do if you want to rescue yourself from having to be in a society that you can't really live in. And the awful tragedy for the Pattinson characters, he gets this lighthouse and he finds there's a, another person there. 
and through that other person, all of the worst things about the society that he comes from uh, are with him uh, in the lighthouse. And worse, now that he is living in the lighthouse, there is nowhere for him to go to get away from these things. He can't even go home and be apart from them for even an hour or two. So I think that in a similar kind of way, a lot of millennial professionals are kind of looking for the job that will get them out of the set of nasty things that they're trying to avoid. And when you're growing up, you know, your parents will tell you, well, if you go and you become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or whatever it might be, you, you know, then you'll be freed from having to live paycheck to paycheck, having to be worried about losing your job. You know, if you get into one of these professions, you know, even wh- whether it's a creative profession or even if it's a, just, just a, you know, STEM, a STEM field, that will give you some kind of insulation, some kind of security, some kind of protection. But the price of it is that it takes over your life. And then you find once you actually take on this kind of job that all of the things that were pernicious about being in high school, being in college, growing up where you grew up, all of those things find their way into being expressed in those fields as well. But you have sunk so much in. You know, you've gone, in the case of Pattinson, he's learned this whole manual. He has you know, committed himself to becoming a lighthouse keeper. He's gone to the island. He's in this lighthouse. There's not another boat coming for at least a month, and then it turns out longer. He doesn't really have a way out, and he's sunk so much of his time, energy, and effort into taking on the, the lighthouse job. It's very hard to go and, and say, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't be here. I got to go. You know, call him up and say, I can't work with this guy. I can't do this job. I'm sorry. I thought it was for me. It's not. There's no way out at that point. And I think the same kind of thing happens. You spend so much time in college and, you, and then you, you know, sometimes you go to grad school, you go to med school, you go to law school, whatever it might be. And by the time they get these jobs, it's very hard to acknowledge just how much those jobs are just different forms of the same prison. I think we need another great mass refusal. I think, you know, I was thinking about Leary's uh, turn on, tune in and drop out. Um, of course, this is like absolutely open to recuperation, like the psychedelic generation, the second summer of love becomes Silicon Valley. And, you know, you have Steve Jobs dropping acid and people microdosing in order to feel more creative at work and the legalization of cannabis all over America, which has just turned everyone into like a chip eating Netflix consuming adult gerbil and <laughs> you know so like it, it can't be the same it can't be the same psychedelic thing because that's yeah. just what we are what we live in now we live in the kind of like horrific and I love entheogens don't get me wrong <laughs> I really do but uh not microdosing I'm completely against this I think it's absolute bollocks it's like homeopathy for middle class people I I really really detest this idea it's so stupid and people saying like oh it makes me a little bit more creative you know fuck off like <laughs> fuck your creativity <laughs> do you know what makes what you feel, do you know what makes you feel creative uh, a lack of anxiety in a form of and material stability which could maybe be achieved a little bit by like rethinking how we've like let corporations off the hook because of their like magical fucking crusade for uh, the right side of history, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, this kind of supplement of like anxiety, guilt, you know, these are powerful things. And then it's like, oh, you can feel a tiny bit better if you take this drug, whether it's an antidepressant, and you're, but you're not actually going to have any security. Or any, like, <laughs> like, why am I feeling shit in the first place? Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, a lot of the, the drugs and, and other kinds of addictive activities people are getting involved with are you know, okay versions of drinking the turpentine. Yeah. They're socially, socially okayed versions of just getting drunk with Willem Dafoe. And I think that that's, that's a big part of what's frustrating is you, know, you can get angry. If you get angry about all this, if you go, this isn't right that I'm in this situation. You don't have a lot of ways of channeling that anger usefully. Do you know another way of getting drunk? Sorry, you were going to continue. I thought you'd... Well, you just you don't have a lot of ways of, of channeling that usefully because there isn't a, you know, a, a political movement no. out there right now that you can get involved in that has any hope of emancipating you from the condition. So you know, then the question becomes, how do you invest in other things when your whole life to this point has been training you to anticipate investing in this specific thing. You've sunk so much time, energy, and effort preparing to be just this thing and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what makes it a lot harder for millennials than, say, Gen Xers who might have always been encouraged by their parents to just do whatever makes them happy. Yeah. Uh, and don't feel this, this pressure to realize something that from the time they were children, they have been set up to try to realize. And I think that's a big part of why th these offices are playpens, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of regression to yeah, childhood that goes sure. on in, in millennial offices. And it's in part because this drive to be the professional is instilled at such an early and young mm. age. You're supposed to start thinking about what it is that you want to do, what is it you want to be, what do you want to go to college and do? Well, this is, yeah. Sorry, go for it, yeah. No, well, I was just going to say, I mean, we, we, we desperately wanted to be adults, but, but adults meant, you know, like having sex, taking drugs, drinking and, you know, like living on your own. Like that's what being an adult was. Um, it wasn't this kind of, you know, yeah. And it was partly about you can do and be whatever you want and it doesn't really matter. Um, and, but, but, the, the, but let's be real, like the material circumstances for me in my generation are different, right? Like Gen X still got some of the boomer money right like we still have a share of the pie if you see what I mean like I own a flat you know like I have some security in my 40s and I think some people in my generation have that as a proportion more than millennials do right if you look at the pie <laughs> right it's still boomers right who have most of it but gen x have some and millennials really don't have any. So, I mean, yeah, I th these are serious ma material conditions. And where, how do we disentangle the kind of ideological, you know, imperatives? So this is why I think we need to, re well, we need to imagine what a great refusal would look like that wouldn't just uh, be a pale shadow of the, the 60s refusal or whatever, which didn't turn out to be a refusal after all, but rather mm -hmm. became the new new reality and or uh, you know surreality that we live in so i mean it would be be very interesting i think to just even highly speculatively which it has to be like what would it what would it look like if an entire generation if you if you like gave up on this story and this narrative you know that they've been kind of programmed with you know to like refuse the clock refuse this idea of progress whether it's in terms of being progressive politically or whether it's in terms of oh you did all this therefore you're you know delayed gratification oh you were you must get a job this kind of job you must study from the age of four you must be like blah 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 
you know, like, what would it actually mean if an entire generation just said, like, no? No, like, I know. And the thing is, I mean, that is that this 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 indoctrination from so early on. It, it, I think is part of part of the issue, as well as just the the brute material conditions when it gets so bad. You know, the 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 worse it gets, the more you have to buy in until it gets to a point where you're like, well, you know, ends yeah. up in the streets, or whatever. But and who could imagine that upper middle class people would be like so? And I know that a lot of people have um, critique of like the the discourse around. Um, student loans. And I, I agree that there are not only student loans, you know, there's payday loans and all these kinds of things. But we do have to admit that this is a, this is a massive issue. But um, it's interesting, just, I was going to say, like, what's another way that people get drunk? Well, um, collective, I think we talked about this on the uh, episode about um, the devils, you know, collective ecstasies of scapegoating and of, of, of becoming the nuns to, you know, um, have this sort of weird... Um, uh, projective identification into these sort of disgusting figures that you can sort of like get high on detesting. And this mm. is the precisely the apolitical move. As Benjamin said, this is not political at all. This is apolitical. This is where using the aesthetics of the past form of politics often. So, you know, these people, these um, floating signifiers are captured, are petrified in a certain being who happens to aesthetically bear some kind of um, similarity, aesthetic similarity to, to some issue that was a real issue, say, 50 or 60 years ago. And it's a great way to sort of capture um, attention from really what is politics, which is to addressing the political economy, which is um, engaging in sort of a, a conflictual um, resolution through um, confronting the contradiction of the system instead of just papering it over. But the other thing is that, you know, so um, in terms of entering adulthood, I mean, so I'm on an app at the moment. I've told you guys about it a lot. And one thing that I would find, say is very interesting is in London, there are many men between the ages of 30 and 50 with good professional jobs who want to get married and have children. And I know this anecdotally, and there's evidence of this in the app. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem, I do think, is that in order to um, be able to... So a, a way that I think a lot of uh, contemporary feminism has to do with a projection of a womanhood that was um, part of an arist uh, the aristocratic feudal dynamic. And so a desire to um, have security through marriage that was only ever available to a tiny proportion of people. So this question of, you know, can you have it all and lean in? It's like women have always fucking worked and had children. Obviously, there are like different um, family networks in sort of working class um, dynamics in the past and the, the granularization has made things difficult. But to, to be in this sort of like uh, have a middle class up upbringing, which is totally granularized, and then um, to be caught up in this sort of imaginary, this sort of like um, sleeping beauty imaginary of what womanhood should be that never really existed. I mean, I think it's really interesting related to this Lacanian idea of the fall of, you know, Eden is only Eden insofar as it is lost. You know, this image of the past is only this um, promise insofar as it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but the point being is I think there's a lot of women caught up in this thing of wishing that they could get married, but not actually being able to afford it, which sounds ridiculous. But it requires a certain, to, to be married to a certain type of man that maybe you can imagine, even though I don't think it really, you know, there's no there's no magical solution in anything. And um, as I said, these forms of marriage in the past often came with like huge amounts of responsibility and sacrifice. And I think this, um, the bourgeois projection of the monarchy, for instance, that was uh, the Meghan Markle perspective really kind of showed up this, this antagonism. But women, it, like it's to be able to um, afford to exist in a way, such a way as to maintain one's appearance, um, you know, put the, actually have the time, we're working all the time, who has time to, um, have you know facials to to you know to who can afford it? Who has time to actually date? I mean, these stupid apps are absolutely ridiculous and completely illogical. But the granularization of and also the pandemic is another 
issue but you you don't meet people and then it's this marketized form that really takes a lot of sort of like energy and attention and it's 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 utterly ridiculous but it requires a certain level of material ease that very few people have to say live in a major city where let's say somebody who you might have imagined with your um the the promise that was given to you because um there wasn't a massive expansion of the middle classes and and an ascension up the the class position i know this is from my family um, and therefore, you know, an anticipation that was always going to go on. So the the type of man that I think or, or woman or whatever, whoever you were going to partner up with, A, they don't really exist in the same way. But B, you, you anticipated that it would be possible. And I think that there's a huge amount of um, lonely men and women <laughs> in relation to this. But also a sort of a confrontation of like, well, I can't afford to be in a relationship. And I think this is not just a man woman thing. I think many men can't afford to be in relationships as well. Um, which is really sad that like you have these people that to team up and this is the the anti-family discourse is is really really conducive to neoliberalism because to yeah. team up is is a way to protect yourself from the worst of the um you know the ravages of the market obviously there are downsides in any system there are downsides there are repressions that need to be acknowledged but there are no you know there's no uh, there's no magic in granularization either but but you have this sad situation where to team up would be would be more conducive. But this ide- ideology in terms of how dating works and how one has to appear and what one's looking for don't aren't and and and, and this honesty to be honest about one's material conditions is also a sort of a very um, emancipatory and kind of radical act. But in this sort of system where everybody is playing the same game that they were brought up with, nobody wants to acknowledge that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're swimming in debt or, or, or what have you. But um, I was going to say one other thing in relation to, um, to the, the childhood, adulthood of millennials, that essentially in their indentured, um, you know, uh, nature in terms of debt, there is an indentiredness towards their own parents um, who have dug the graves of their own children in their investment in neoliberalism and their overinvestment in the promise of the market. And um, what was I going to say? I had something to say in relation to this. Damn. But there is the, the sort of like the, the, the younger generation are the, um, the, the, the bank of cultural capital and actual capital. They are generating value without pay, which is sustaining the value generation of neoliberalism. They are the banks of their own parents. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think you can really see it in the kind of declassed red state Democrat <laughs> millennial. So this would be somebody who grows up in a red state where there is an expectation that you're going to complete what I call the Midwest checklist. So the Midwest checklist is a very like 50s trad version of what an American life is meant to be. You know, you graduate high school, you graduate college, you get a job, you buy a house, you get married, you have kids. You do all of those things. And if you don't do all of those things, then something didn't go right. That's the Midwest checklist. So these people are the children of professionals. They get sent to college. They you know, do fine. They graduate. They do all right. But then they're not able to get a job that really puts them in the kind of financial situation their parents were in because the professional class is contracting. Economic conditions do not allow the professional class to reproduce itself or for all of the children of professionals to succeed in being professional. And so these people end up in jobs that, yeah, they might require a college degree, but they don't compensate in anything like the same way that professional class jobs 40 or 50 years ago would have compensated. So they end up in a situation where they're not really able to afford children. They're not great 
marriage material for other for for professionals for people who have made it for the more successful professionals uh, so they're not highly eligible and they end up moving back to their hometown or near their hometown getting a job not very far from where their parents live sometimes they move back in with their parents i know uh, somebody who was working at the movie theater in high school uh, went to college, graduated, came back, and worked at the movie theater some more because there was nothing else really to do. You know, it, it, it's that kind of situation. And then what happens when you're in that kind of situation is that you really, really have to hold on to the things, that the experiences that you had in college which differentiate you from the people who didn't go to college. It's this legacy of having grown up in a professional home and having been in the university setting that separates you from the people who were working class and didn't didn't do anything with it. So on the one hand, you get this, this desire to hang on to the moral distinctiveness, which comes from being culturally liberal, culturally someone who went to college, and hanging on to that distinction, even when it alienates you and separates you from most of the other people in your community. So a lot of these people hate their hometowns, hate their states, hate the places where they live, don't like most of the people around them. They got this wall up because that wall is all that they have left to differentiate themselves. The other thing that happens is that they, it, it's, it's very difficult to, because it's so difficult to have children or get married, there's an impulse to slag those things off as part of the traditional way of life that they've been able to distance themselves from by having gone to college. Mm -hmm. So they not only will use all of these cultural signifiers as ways of defending themselves from the reality that they've been declassed and plunged into the working class, they will then use these things to excuse and even valorize their inability to complete the Midwest checklist. Mm -hmm. So they'll say that the Midwest checklist is evil, that it's constraining them, that actually they never wanted to complete the checklist. Actually, they want to live totally different lives that have nothing to do with the checklist, that embody some set of, of values that they perceive themselves to have picked up from having been better educated. But overwhelmingly, these people are depressed. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, they have mental health problems. Over, and that's why millennials are constantly talking about anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and how ubiquitous they are. Yeah, I think that's really astute. I think this idea of like luxury beliefs, almost like a self-defense, you know, mm -hmm. it's like to, because otherwise to admit that you haven't done or succeeded in the way that you wanted or you're not happy is is too brutal. But it, even, yeah, like you say, but even the, the ideological supplement of admitting you're anxious and depressed and have mental health problems is not actually the full story either. No. It's like there's a superficial way of saying, oh, yes, we're all depressed. We've all got mental health problems. We're all traumatized. We're all yeah, we're traumatized you know, by but, a patriarchal upbringing, quote unquote. Yeah. But even though there's like no fathers and no one takes responsibility and actually we live in a completely anti-patriarchal. Yeah, completely <laughs> like no social bonds at all. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, it's like the supplement is is at the level of the body and mental. You know, it's like where where is where are you going to get the material, the the, the sort of real material story? You know, and people mm -hmm. even make up things about which mental illness they have. They, they definitely are mentally ill, right? But they they say they have one thing and not another thing. You know, it's like 
It remains the case that most successful professionals get married and have children. Mm -hmm. But the ones who are not succeeding, who have been plunged into the working class, end up, like the rest of the working class, increasingly not getting married, not having children, or if they are having children, not having them in accordance with a plan. Mm. Uh, and But they have a, uh, because they went to college, they're able to couch this in a language which is self-justifying. But it's interesting, you know, these people that, um, I, 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 you know, you have these sort of left-wing, quote-unquote, publishing houses, but I think they're the the extreme end of neoliberalism, who um, create, who who, um, commission books with writers who create basically the the latest ideological supplement, which of course is very, very compelling to a type of person who um, understandably wants to, not even deny, to um, explicate their own suffering, but it's an explication that's at a distance from the the true antagonistic reality of their suffering. and I was, I find it very sad. <laughs> and I always, I do sometimes wonder, like, do the people who, you know, um, have their, uh, oh, we have a Patreon, but have their, you know, successful Patreons and their book deals <laughs> with X, X, X books. Um, do they, are they aware, you know, but potentially they, you know, you know, this is something that, that they, they feel to be true or is true for them, but then is that, that on a wider ideological level becomes a sort of justification for the, for, and, and it's in the name of the left. I find it really hilarious that it's in the name of the left when it is a um, mystification. And I do think that the, the, the issue today is mystification. Mystification, so a repression of the repression. So what is, re- so it's, it's a denial of the mechanisms of denial. Um, and I think that's really, really the problem. And obviously, um, a lot of uh, the theory that um, we talk about gets a bad name from, let's say the let's say the sort of conservative position, um, precisely because it's it's um, again just like everything a skin suit. It's, it takes out the actual dialectical premise, the Hegelian dialectical premise of let's say continental philosophy to to marketize it, to turn it from this contradiction, this foregrounding of contradiction, to this oppositional highly reactionary, highly right-wing form of theory. Um, that, And I, I really, you know, obviously there's many people um, who, who really stand up for this, but very, you know, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult because, um, you know, this is not conducive to the market. And, and it is, you know, we talk about anxiety and, and there is a sort of, um, and I'm not saying it's like anybody's ethically superior for doing it. Often there's a sort of a, there are material comforts that allow one to actually, uh, to, to, con- to confront this, um, these, these truths. And often, you know, um, unfortunately, they're, they're just, they're, there's many conservatives who point out this repression of the repression, but I think they do it theori- theoretically, like incorrectly and, um, slightly miss the, their own implication in the generation of this, of this um, ideological supplement. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, there's less and less and less place to do it. I think that one of the things that happens is that because people, a lot of traditional workers just have kids uh, at, because they don't expect their kids to be able to necessarily be professional because they grew up as workers. If you grew up as a worker, you don't really have an expectation that your kids should be able to be professionals. So they have kids in situations that declassed millennial professionals would, would regard as not appropriate situations to have kids in. And I remember I saw a tweet. I, I don't remember who it's from. I think it was a conservative account just saying, just have kids. Things will work out like they worked out for people 10,000 years ago. And 
if you if you're a worker and you are okay with that uh, and you don't care if your kids climb a class ladder then you can do that but the declassed professional feels fundamentally like it's irresponsible to have working class children and once you have children the obligations to children that professionals feel that they would have would be so great that if they've not been able to make it as professionals, they know that once they have kids, they'll never make it as professionals. They'll be too busy taking care of their children. And so if you have kids as a D-class professional, that's kind of the end of any possibility that you would reconstitute yourself as properly professional class. And that's another reason why it's put off and why it's associated with this like end of freedom. It's not an end of freedom to have children. What it's an end of is the possibility that you might climb the class ladder, that you might actually succeed in fulfilling the promise from when you were a child. And so this is why there's this kind of, uh, and people resent it, and I understand why they resent it when they're kind of treated like they're staying in a kind of childhood when they don't have children, and they find it very condescending when people make that argument. I understand why people feel that way, because it is it, it can feel very condescending, but there is a kind of wanting to stay in the phase of life before you have children where you're establishing yourself. Because if you haven't there. established yourself in, in the way that you'd like to, if you keep that window open longer, it extends that possibility Absolutely. of establishing yourself in the way that you might like. And you can imagine that, yeah, you're, you're depressed right now, you're, you're having problems, but eventually you'll get your mental health in order and you'll still somehow find yeah, a way to be absolutely. what you always were meant to be. Because this is the thing, this is a denial. This is where, you know, the ideological supplement is precisely right wing, not left wing, because it's denying that this is not, this isn't a contingent thing. This isn't a personal responsibility thing. This, this isn't a brain chemical thing. You know, that these have, you know, anxiety it does operate with brain chemicals, but this is largely, obviously there, there are all sorts of in a universe of variants within this, but this is denying the the eternal nature of this, which is the fact that this is how um, value is generated. And so, and again, like this idea of luxury beliefs as this criticism from the right, where it doesn't quite capture it. And I think this is what we've all been saying. As you said, this is not just a, a bi-coastal, a coastal elite issue. Yes, a lot of the discourse is generated in the offices of, let's say, the New York Times on the East Coast or whatever. But this is people who are not, are poor, but they're, there has not been a cultural reckoning and an admitting that people who went to university, many of them are very much working class, really. And also the, the amount of value that's being generated, A, by the debt and B, by unpaid labor, by all these people, you know, creating and trying to get things off the ground is, um, is immense. <laughs> and I think to admit really... And I think as well, I don't know, what did you guys know about like the, the statistics related to student loans, obviously, because there's the thing of like, well, uh, somebody who went to university over the course of their life can expect X and it still out, outweighs the debt. But I'm guessing that that doesn't, that is that like the mean or is that the median? Because there'll be some people who earn a lot, but many people who earn nothing, right? How's that, how's that? Do you know, do we know the statistics on that? Well, uh, the... So there are some statistics on what is the average amount that people owe, which includes people who don't owe everything. And then there are further statistics about the people who do owe, what's the average amount that they owe. So those are two separate statistics. Oh, we, we, are, we are over an hour. I just want to say well, one last thing. Up. Yes, coming up yeah, on we're an hour. Yes, we're coming up on an hour. So I just want to say one last thing, which is just um, 
that yeah, you know, I think that it's it's really difficult in part because you know on on the left, the millennial left, on the one hand, it goes, hey, we're a working class movement, but it's dominated by D-class professionals who don't recognize that they're workers. Yeah. They, they do and they don't. They'll exactly. say they're workers, but they, they're not really comfortable being workers. And because they can't admit that they're workers, really admit it, they aren't able to form bonds of solidarity with traditional workers. Absolutely. And so in a sense, the millennial left is a working class movement, but it's a working class movement that still wants to be professional. And because it wants to be professional, it can't really be a, work, a worker's movement, even though it is made up of workers. It's funny because when it, when it sort of it talks about the unionization and everything, this is, it, it almost has this sort of universalism that doesn't take into consideration class. So it doesn't take into consideration. So it's like, we're all like, I heard, I think it was like, what's the lady called that's, she's um, Nina something that was like a Dem, uh, like a someone press, like a, a Bernie press secretary. And she was no, like- Nina Turner, I think. Nina Turner, she yeah. was saying like how people, everybody's working class, like people who earn 500 grand a year are working class because they work for a salary. And you're like, no. <laughs> so, so um, but yeah, there's a complete misrecognition of like what constitutes class. And so you have this, this idea that you are still, we're doing a political movement that will still apply when I am going to be the person who is, temp well, I am temporarily frustrated from earning half a million dollars a year or whatever. But it isn't actually admitting, no, no, you are proletarian, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's the fundamental problem. A lot of the time when people talk about it, they talk about it in terms of income, and income doesn't capture this. The professional mm -hmm. class uh, mentality is not a mentality associated with earning a particular income, it's a mentality with thinking that you, because you went to college, should be able to achieve a particular Absolutely. class position that you, you are not able to achieve. So uh, one, one other thing. So we are thinking about when we get to 100 patrons, we're going to do an episode on that Netflix film, Don't Look Up. When we get to 100 patrons, <laughs> none of the three no. of us are willing to pick it. So we're only willing to do it once we get to 100. And we're not, I don't think we're quite at 100 yet. But when we get to 100, we will, we will stop and we'll do an episode on Don't Look Up, but we will not do it until we get to 100 because none of us want to waste our pick on Don't Look Up. We can't, whoever would, would pick it would feel taken advantage of by the other two. So once you guys get us to 100, then we'll don't, just don't we'll do a, a fan pick week. Don't, yeah, don't do get whatever to you do. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so if you guys don't get us to 100, then we can avoid Don't Look Up and, and, uh, and you know, maybe we'll be better off, to be honest with you. So, uh, but for now, we're going to go do our B-side episode for Patreon listeners. So thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye, -bye.